Welcome to Aspen Insight. I'm Marcy Krivenin. And I'm Zach St. Louis. Today's show is all about speaking up, finding common ground, and connecting people with technology. First, we start with the Me Too movement. The movement is empowering women and men across the globe to break their silence and speak up about sexual assault and harassment. The activism, largely on social media, is shedding light on the incredible magnitude of the problem. Titans of Hollywood, members of Congress, and high-profile journalists have been accused and stepped down from positions of power. Our own Peggy Clark experienced unwanted sexual advances when she was starting out in her career. Now, like so many others, she's speaking up. Peggy wrote about her experience in a blog for the Aspen Institute website titled, It Happens Every Day, It Isn't Okay. She's vice president of policy programs and leads the Aspen Global Innovators Group. She's also a longtime women's rights activist. She joins me now. Thanks for being here, Peggy. Thank you so much, Marcy. I'm delighted to be here with you today. So we're talking about this blog post, and you began the blog with these three sentences. There it is, that quiet moment when everything changes. The earth spins on its axis just a few degrees, and it all looks different. Has the Me Too movement spun the earth on its axis, so to speak, around the issue of sexual assault and harassment? Um, So, Marcy, I think that's a really interesting question. Are we at this moment when the whole world is turning on its axis in a different way, when we're about to move to a profound new kind of realization about gender. And, you know, for most of my life, I've been really intrigued with what really makes social change happen. And so I think most of us can remember that moment when all of a sudden um, gay marriage was <laughs> was legal and it began to be something that people were much, much more comfortable with. Even though many, many, many people had fought for so many years about the issue of LGBT rights, all of a sudden, I think it was just a few years ago, public sentiment changed, employers and corporate America changed, and policy changed. And in that case, it happened at the state level. And I think we're on the verge of that with these issues of sexual harassment right now that have kind of come about in a very sort of unusual way. It began, I think, during the campaign, the Trump campaign, when the tape came out of Trump boasting about sexual advances. And I think there was a lot of pent-up anger that happened at that moment. And then what has happened really this year is something unlike we've ever seen. I think people are really caught unawares by how pervasive, how pervasive sexual harassment has been. And so I think we are at a kind of a shock moment as it relates to the issue of sexual harassment. You wrote that you've experienced unwanted sexual advances in your own life, and you were told to just go along with them. What did your experience look like? And has that that sort of go along with it culture changed with the passing of time? Marcy, I think this is such an important issue for all of us to talk about. And I think the thing that I'm most struck by is how much this has changed over the last several decades. I'm sort of gobsmacked by how different it is. And I'll give you a sense of this. So when I was in my 20s, when I was young, um, I did experience sexual harassment. And I was working late in the office. And a particularly powerful person who was a senior person who I didn't report to directly, but who was very senior, came up behind 
in me and and fondled my breasts. And I sort of tried to make a joke and make light of it. And I was very, very uncomfortable. And I went to my boss, who was actually a woman, and her response was, we like X person. You know, deal with it. Don't say anything about it. We like him. Um, this was a former, you know, former member of Congress and, a, and actually a very lovely, wonderful person. Um, so I, I felt quite um, alone in that moment and unable to figure out what to do about it. And so what I did was I just didn't work late anymore. I didn't I, I, I made sure that I was not in a situation where I would be alone with that person. It's interesting to me how how much it affected me and how I felt that I had no recourse, so much so that I I'm still think about that issue. And so what was so interesting that happened this year, which to me is such a historic marker of where we, how far we've come with this, is in reading all of these things myself and all of the uh, stories, I was reflecting on my experience and how to handle it differently and what would a really enlightened institution do. And so I called... I wrote an email to Walter Isaacson saying, I think we can do much better. And he immediately picked up the phone and he called me. And so we had this really quite wonderful conversation about what would it look like if we could protect people that wanted to come forward better and how could we as a as an institution handle these things much better. So since that time, there's been a lot of activity and a lot of thought about what new policies and procedures we could be implementing in order to do so. You know, Peggy, you mentioned that you felt helpless when you were in your 20s and you had that experience. What changed in you to take that step to, you know, come forward and actually take action and move from feeling helpless to feeling more empowered? Um, that others were standing with me. The cover of Time magazine is the, the of the person of the year is the code breakers. And so I felt like I wasn't alone, that there were other people who were brave enough to come forward and say, this happened to me too. And strangely, it isn't that this hasn't happened before, but it's that people are hearing it differently and listening differently and believing it differently. And so you know, for most of my life, working on women's rights issues, really all of my life, uh, we we have been really fighting an uphill battle. And we continue to feel we're making some progress, but not enough progress. And so it was really quite empowering to feel that there was a place to bring something forward in a way that wouldn't be immediately dismissed. Um, so I, that's the only thing I can say why. I think it's quite funny that I felt brave enough to do that, actually. But when I look at at that point, Marcy, that you're raising, well, how did I get the courage to do that and why? You know, I'm quite a senior person at the Institute. I am a respected professional. So I, I think so much about how others who are not in powerful positions, how hard it is for them to bring these issues forward. And, and that brings up really a fundamental issue here, which is, you know, this is really not so much about sex or about gender as much as it is about power also. And there was a recent article about this notion of the economics of consent. What seems to be not brought forward enough is the consequences to a person who brings forward an issue about harassment to somebody who holds economic power over their job. That's a very real thing. So, you know, the conversation about eliminating unwanted sexual advances began with the women's movement. Do you see other groups now or other individuals joining the effort? Well, 
I love thinking about this, and this is why I do feel hopeful, is this is not a women's issue, obviously. And what's so interesting and comforting right now is men thinking about in what way am I uh, discriminating against you or not discriminating against you. And so I've had conversations with my husband about in what ways he is or he's not a feminist. He seems to think he is, but I think there's a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, I think we all felt really wonderful when former President Barack Obama said, you know, this is what a feminist looks like. I have two daughters, and this is what I want for them. And I do feel like new generations of men are thinking about gender differently. That's the way forward. That really is the solution. You know, I look at younger generations of men, and I see that they've grown up with a different kind of a set of expectations of women in leadership positions and um, women owning assets and 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 women um, having political power that is slowly over the decades changing perceptions of women so that they are not always seen as less than or uh, as not having the potential for powerful impact. Merriam-Webster said that the word of the year is feminism, and others have called 2018 as the year of a woman. And I find this so interesting and refreshing, and so I think we're only at the beginning of these conversations, which the Me Too movement has sort of, you know, knocked open the whole set of conversations around this. I feel like this kind of a radical shock to the system of what's happening with the Me Too movement is waking a lot of people up to unpack the onion of in what ways is there implicit gender discrimination and lack of rights and how can we tackle it? So let's ask ourselves what needs to be done at this moment. And it's so critical for us to recognize the reason we are here right now is because so many people are were willing to be very, very courageous and come forward with their stories, risking everything, really risking their jobs and in many cases in, in endangering their lives in order to bring these stories forward. So what we need to do as institutions and leaders and individuals is to rise to meet that challenge and look anew at policies and procedures in organizations, in companies, to find ways to rework those policies so they're not just favoring the institutions and protecting the institution and those in power, but they're also deeply sensitive to people who want to bring issues forward and are thoughtful and sensitive about ways we can approach these issues in a completely different way than we've done before. And I really hope we can do that together. Well, Peggy Clark, thank you so much. Thank you, Marcy. It's been wonderful to talk with you today, as always, and appreciate your attention to this issue so much. Peggy Clark's Aspen Global Innovators is partnering with the Institute's Ascend program to launch the Aspen Forum on Women and Girls this year. The forum focuses on gender equity and economic opportunity. Subject matter, Peggy says, is well-timed as women and men across the socioeconomic spectrum continue to tell their stories. Find out more at aspeninstitute.org insight. There, you can also find a link to Peggy's blog post. Having a conversation with someone who disagrees with you or comes from a different background can be a huge challenge. Finding common ground, especially around topics that are personal, can feel impossible. I recently spoke to our colleague, Todd Brayfogel, whose job is to literally encourage difficult conversations. 
He runs our seminars department. Todd brings people from different backgrounds together around a seminar table and uses readings from great philosophers, historical figures, and activists to guide them in discussion. The goal is to help the participants better understand one another and themselves. Here's our conversation. Todd, thank you so much for taking some time to come and talk to me today. Thank you, Zach. It's great to be here. So before we jump in, can you just give us the short version of what your job is? What does the seminars department do? The short version, as I often tell seminarians, is that uh, in the seminars department, we help successful people live more philosophically. Um, What does that mean? Uh, We don't teach. This is not a training. Uh, Values are not something that can be downloaded from one person to another. But we do create a space where the values can be explored, clarified, tested. And it is the case that uh, we spend most of our time day to day responding to the immediate pressing details, as, this, as the saying goes, right? We, we sacrifice the important for the urgent. Um, and the, you know, the founder of the Aspen Institute, Walter Pepke, said that the purpose of this seminar was to help each of us become more self-aware and more self-correcting. Um, all of us need an opportunity at all stages of life to become more self-aware and more self-correcting. So, Todd, to create that space at the seminar where participants can all come together and have those kinds of reflections with one another, I know that they're all expected to come in having read the same texts. And that's a mix of philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, but also more contemporary things as well. In order to get a better sense of this, I'm hoping that you'll read one of those texts for us right now. And it's one that I know is read in almost every Aspen Institute seminar, and it's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Sure, I'd be, I'd be delighted to, although this is pure poetry, and it's, uh, it's hard to capture uh, every nuance. Um, this is from the middle of the, the Letter from Birmingham Jail, uh, under uh, the heading, uh, Breaking the Law. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools, it is rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. To use the words of Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, segregation substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship, and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. So segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound, 
but it is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation. Isn't segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation, an expression of his awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness? So I can urge men to disobey segregation ordinances because they are all morally wrong. Wow. What's your first reaction to that? Why did you choose that passage? Wow is my first reaction to that. Every time I read it, and I've read it hundreds of times now um, in seminar and outside of seminar, is there's something so incredibly powerful, not only of the language, um, but also of the the philosophical and and moral reach. Um, This is thought in action, and one can't come away from hearing these words or reading these words without a sense of conviction and urgency. Am I living justly? Do my actions uplift the human personality? Or do my actions treat another as an it, as an abstraction, as a thing? Even though this is a passage about the law and the breaking of the law, I think it goes to the very core of the kinds of decisions that we make, the kinds of actions that we engage in. So here's a question. Why does reading this letter from 1963 help us have a better conversation in 2018? Or I guess the bigger question is, why do we read these things at all in the seminar? How does it help us reflect on our values? We come to read them not because they have the answers, but because they have really, really good questions. Secondly, they have really good questions and they're fine minds at work. And we learn something about them and we learn something about ourselves when we engage with them in conversation. And then, of course, we learn something about each other in a group as each of us tries to interpret the text that's before us. So there are two things in particular that happen. One, whenever I read someone else's work, I have to, for that moment anyway, do my best to put myself in their shoes. So I see the world from another perspective. And when I have to interpret a text in your company and you're interpreting that text, I have to begin to see the world from your point of view. So is there an academic or intellectual component to this? Absolutely. But there's a very practical component in that we slow down and come to practice what it means to imagine the world from uh, through a different set of eyes. So you mentioned that you've ran these seminars for people from all different backgrounds, right? But I can imagine that sometimes when you get two people around the table who are really different from one another, it can be hard for them to find common ground, open up to one another. What happens when that happens? We, we see that literally um, a thousand times in every seminar. I remember a seminar a number of years ago where we had two participants who, when I sat them next to each other, moved their name tags so they wouldn't have to sit next to each other. And all the stereotypes here applied. Um, one was black, one, they were both men. One was black, one was white. One was in the nonprofit sector, one was very much in the for-profit sector. Um, one was a Republican, one was a Democrat, and they were really hard-pressed to engage each other at all. And over the course of a couple of days, uh, several things happened. One, they had to listen to each other interpret the text. So they got a genuine respect for each other's intellects. 
Secondly, they began, because of that process, to develop a sense of knowledge of the person behind the mind, as it were, the, the whole human character, or the, the human personality, as Martin Luther King puts it. And as they did that, they recognized in each other not just what they hated about the other side, but the, the, the heart behind it. And then as those barriers broke down over a couple of days, they came to understand that they had almost identical upbringings. They both came from situations of um, considerable poverty. One of them had worked very, very hard and was not going to let anyone through taxation or any other means take away what he had earned, and that was a principle of justice. The other one had worked very, very hard, but as a way of giving back to his community, spent most of his time in the nonprofit sector because, as he put it, I could not have worked as hard as I did without the support, without the intervention of others helping me along the way. One Democrat, one Republican, they're not going to agree on policy. They're not even going to agree on values necessarily, but they could respect each other because they recognized that they were coming from the same place and they actually wanted the same thing, but there were two different ways of getting there. And it was an incredibly moving moment, as, as, as smarmy as it may sound, but they looked at each other and they gave each other a big hug, people who two days, later, two, two days earlier wouldn't sit next to each other, and they say, I will never agree with you but we share enough that we can work together. And I think that epitomizes the common ground that we often talk about at the Aspen Institute. Common ground doesn't mean agreement. It means taking the time and inhabiting a space where we can really understand each other and work together, not because we agree, but because we understand where and why we disagree. So if we could zoom out even a little further, what advice would you have for our listeners, let's say, who might be hearing this and thinking, man, I wish I could have a conversation like that, short of attending the Aspen Seminar, which you, they can do, by the way, but let's say they can't get to the Aspen Seminar. They want to have this around the kitchen table or with their organization or in their community or at their school. What advice do you have for them? Slow down. So often we're keen to go from point A to point B through the you know, fastest possible means. Um, conversations don't work that way. So the first piece of advice is pause. Um, the second is related, listen. Very often when someone else begins to speak, uh, we react to something and we start our internal tape loop and we're already preparing our response, which means that we're not actually listening to the other person. Ask yourself not do, what do I want to say, but what does the conversation need? And it's very often the opportunity genuinely to listen to the other person, to ask a genuine question. Well, why, why do you think that? Um, that elicits the stories or the, the formation of, of value statements uh, that actually give us something to, to, to work with. If we could do that around the Thanksgiving dinner table, then we might get along with our relatives and our neighbors better. Todd Brayfogel is the director of seminars at the Aspen Institute. Find out more at aspeninstitute.org seminars. 
If you enjoyed the first segment of this episode with Peggy Clark, you should check out another Aspen Institute podcast, The Bridge. The Bridge is hosted by Peggy and brings together women from different generations to discuss important issues like sexual identity, women's rights, global health, and more. Find it by searching for The Bridge from the Aspen Institute on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. So, Zach. Yes? Do you remember where you had your first kiss? (laughs) I do. I think it's one of those early memories that kind of sticks with you. Well, people are mapping these kinds of memories. First job, first apartment, where your child took their first steps. Life milestones are popping up in digital maps. Like a human mapping movement. Exactly. Technically, it's called neogeography. It allows people to see the world from the eyes of its inhabitants, and it helps bring people together. Diane Eisner, a Henry Crown Fellow with the Institute, is part of this movement. She co-founded Placial, or the People's Atlas. Now she's the director of Growth for Waze, a popular crowdsourced navigation traffic app. It's part of Google. Oh, yeah, I use Waze when I'm taking a road trip. You and 90 million other people. I spoke with Diane in Aspen. Here's my interview with her. Well, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I read that you received your degree in studio art and business administration from New York University. What led you to work with maps? (laughs) That's a good one. Uh, I have had uh, an ongoing conflict from both halves of my brain where I feel the need to have this this um, creative outlet and, and I'm often inspired cre- creatively. And on the other hand, I'm a very practical person. And so having the combination of business and, and the creative side while I don't paint anymore has been kind of an ongoing theme uh, throughout my career. Mapping is one of those great intersections uh, between both, where mapping itself is, again, uh, very practical. We use it for things like getting from point A to point B. We use it for navigation. We use it for understanding boundaries. At the same time, there is a much newer movement that uh, some call neo-geography, which is really about the human side of mapping. Uh, How do you map what's familiar? How do you map uh, everything from where did you have your first kiss to what is the local architecture look like? And so this phase of map making uh, is a a very beautiful intersection of both for me, and I I just always found it very exciting. So you mentioned mapping your first kiss. Have you worked uh, in an organization or with a project where you're seeing people actually mapping kind of personal milestones in their lives? Definitely. And I think that's part of this human mapping movement. Uh, One of the companies that I had earlier on was called Placial, and it was um, People's Atlas. And we had about 10 million people making maps of what was important to them. And so for many people, that was their personal uh, stories being put on a map. So how do you tell a geographic story? Maybe it's um, all the different places you lived. Maybe it is. We've had several people map their first kisses. Yes, this was a collaborative map of hundreds of people. That was interesting. (laughs) But again, it's, you know, you give people this canvas, which in, in, in this case is a geographic look at the world. And if you really want to see the world from the eyes of its inhabitants and not just the 30,000-foot view, but really down on the ground, that's a great way to do it. Give this canvas and allow people to map whatever they want, however they want to interact with place and tell that story. That's what we were really doing. Sounds very cool. So you're the head of growth for Waze. What does Waze do? 
Waze is a navigation real-time traffic application, uh, but more importantly, it is uh, really a community of about 90 million drivers around the world that are sharing basic information about speeds, uh, about going from point A to point B so that we can route as many people as possible around traffic, be very efficient with our road networks, which are in many places reaching capacity, uh, and really leveraging this crowd, this collaboration to get people where they want to go faster. And so the big mission is about saving people five minutes a day every day. And this is the painful five minutes being stuck in traffic. And I know for people in Sao Paulo, Jakarta, LA, uh, this is much more than five minutes. It can be many, many hours per week. So much of your work with Waze and Playshall, uh, which allowed people to map, um, like you said, things that are important to them, revolved around collaboration. People collaborate with each other, often with strangers through these applications. You know, are you drawn to that intersection of technology and human collaboration? This notion of bringing people together through technology is why I'm in technology. I, I just I love the idea the there are so many people in the world there's so much division there's so much fragmentation i mean you can that's even now starting to become an, an even more important topic you need strategies for collaborating and bringing people together and i would say where we're taking this you know if you look just beyond what we're doing at coreways and you look at the carpool product you've got cars that are sitting parked 95% of the time the impact on a specific city so for example los angeles the county of L.A. has about 40% of the footprint of the entire county is there to support car infrastructure, roads, parking. 14% is parking lots alone and all the kind of accommodating um, car culture features. So imagine if we just shared. And naturally, there are trends around car sharing, uh, around autonomy that I think are coming together in a beautiful way. So what we're saying is, why don't we just carpool? We have two Wazers that are going to the same place. We don't need to have a professional driver getting in the middle to share that experience, and then you get to go to work. And the really cool thing is, for some people, that means just you know covering the cost of a commute. That can be a really big deal. For some people, it's about saving time. So you get to use an HOV lane, for example, or a carpool lane. Um, and for others, it's about bringing people together. Just the number one, this is very funny, the number one reason people tell us they use services, they don't want to be lonely. It's lonely sitting hour after hour, day after day. You've listened to all your podcasts doing the same commute, and you're helping somebody out. Just fill that empty seat. So our goal is to make people feel kind of guilty about having an empty seat uh, that they're not using in sure. their car. And what a great way to build efficiency using collaboration. And carpooling, I think the main reason it hasn't worked before is that there hasn't been a nice, simple technical infrastructure that allows it to be simple, simple, simple. And hopefully we're there. So yes, the intersection of technology and humans to come together to solve a problem collaboratively, I, I love this. Well, and it's so interesting, the loneliness piece of it, too. Um, I mean, I could understand that. You're going the same route every day by yourself. And like you said, you've exhausted your podcast selection. So, I mean, it could do more. You know, this technology could do more than just get you from point A to point B faster. Exactly. We can get actual cars off the road. Diane Eisner, head of growth for Waze. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. 
In addition to her work at Waze, Diane is helping entrepreneurs in underserved urban areas with the Neighborhood Start Fund. She developed the project with rapper Lupe Fiasco, also a Henry Crown Fellow. The microfund supports efforts to provide greater access to SNAP benefits and expand online mental health services. It was developed as part of the Henry Crown Fellowship. Find out more at aspeninstitute.org insight. That's it for today's episode. Do us a huge favor and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. And you can send us your thoughts on Twitter using hashtag Aspen Insight. Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute, and the Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Special thanks to our colleagues in the Aspen Global Innovators Group, the Seminars Department, and the Aspen Global Leadership Network for contributing to this episode. I'm Zach St. Louis. And I'm Marcy Krivenin. Thanks for listening.